0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Hear
1: the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. To all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover land. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. This is God's word. Please be seated.
0: As I said, this morning we returned back to the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 12, Uh, last fall. We had a dozen or so sermons in Exodus. We took a break at the beginning of this uh, winter and spring to kind of work through Philippians and now we're back. Uh, in order to sort of remind all of us of where we've been, in order to catch you up if you're visiting or new, I have to remind you of where we are in the story for you to begin to even uh, understand what's going on in chapter 12 of Exodus. The people of Israel, who, who started out as one extended family hundreds of years before, they've become this rapidly multiplying multitude within uh, the land of Egypt. And uh, while for years, Uh, The people of Israel enjoyed the favor and the kindness of the Pharaohs. Uh, In recent years, the Pharaohs had noticed this rapidly growing people group inside uh, their own boundaries, the boundaries of their own country. And and so the Pharaohs began to fear the Israelites, and the Pharaohs began to implement public policy uh, in an attempt to oppress the Israelites and and, and essentially to to sort of curb uh, population growth uh, among the Hebrews. So they enslaved them. Uh, They forced them to perform impossible uh, physical labor, and then they beat them when they were unable to do it. They moved uh, the men to other locations away from their families uh, to build cities. Uh, When nothing else worked, uh, Pharaoh finally decreed that all Egyptians should take uh, all Hebrew male infants and throw them into the Nile, which they presumably did. Uh, But even in the midst of the persecution and the pain and the suffering, Exodus tells us that the multitude kept growing. So Moses uh, was an Israelite boy. Uh, He was ironically saved uh, by Pharaoh's daughter from uh, the Nile. He he grew up in Pharaoh's house. But at the age of 40, Moses had to flee the country because his most intense loyalty uh, to the Israelites became uh, known. So Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years shepherding and just living a, a life of exile in a sense. And after 40 years, Uh, The Lord, Yahweh, uh, confronted Moses. He converted Moses. Um, He called Moses, a very hesitant Moses, uh, into his service. He, He labeled Moses as his deliverer. That God wanted to deliver his people, and he wanted to do it through Moses. So Moses finally gets in and sees Pharaoh. And in his time in Pharaoh, he he tells Pharaoh that the Israelites need to go, that God has called his people out of the land, and this massive workforce for Pharaoh should simply uh, be let go. And of course, Pharaoh, as you recall, he refuses. And and God's response to Pharaoh's refusal is the 10 plagues, the so-called 10 plagues, where where these are the mighty acts of God. And, And God is convincing Pharaoh, one plague after another, that Pharaoh would be best suited to just let his people go. Okay, so the plague we read of this morning in in Exodus 12 is the 10th and the climactic plague, and a lot happened for hundreds of years uh, before it. So, in chapter 7, when the plagues were being introduced, God says He is doing two things. Now, I'm quoting uh, chapter 7, I believe this is verses 4 and 5. This is God speaking to Moses. He says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. God's saying, I'm doing two things in the plagues. He, he continues on in chapter 7, I will stretch out my hand against Egypt, and I will bring out the people of Israel from among them. God is saying, on the one hand, the plagues are, are judgment against Egypt, and, and on the other hand, at the very same time, the plagues are salvation for the Israelites. So we studied the judgment side of the ten plagues uh, again, last fall, we, we considered these three layers of the great acts of the judgment of God. We, we talked about the fact that the text makes it clear, even our text, chapter 12, verse 12, says that this is against the gods of Egypt, that first of all, God is executing judgment against the actual gods of Egypt. Secondly, we, we studied how each of these plagues is an argument against the idol structure of the Egyptian land. So the idols that the Egyptians themselves uh, formed and worshipped and articulated, God is going after each and every one of them. Almost every plague that, that happens of the ten is a direct attack against a, a specific God in the Egyptian uh, pantheon. But then the last sermon on the great acts of judgment was, was a sermon about the reality this is God's judgment against Pharaoh. And against an arrogant and self centered and self promoting people. Uh, so, this week, though, now as we, we're coming back, we're actually going to look at the exact same event. What the Egyptians would have called uh, the 10th plague, the climactic plague, uh, the Israelites would have seen that exact same event as the Passover. They would have seen it as and experienced it as God saving his people. Okay, so we're going to study uh, the same event, but we're going to study it from the other side of the coin. And from the Passover, uh, we're going to learn three things about the Lord. Okay, so from the Passover, we're going to learn three things about Yahweh. The Lord is the God who brings the judgment we want. Uh, the Lord is the God who accepts the substitute He wants. And the Lord is the God who provides the sacrifice we need. He brings the judgment we want. He accepts the substitute He wants. And He provides the sacrifice we need. So let's, let's get going. First, The Israelites learn that Yahweh, and we learn that Yahweh is the God who brings the judgment we want. So compared to the previous nine plagues, the tenth plague is clearly shown as God being the active agent bringing judgment on the Egyptians. Don't get me wrong. All the previous acts, all the previous plagues are acts of God, but this one is outstandingly so. God himself comes. He passes through He strikes. Listen uh, to the text. I just pulled out a few verses, not even all of them. Chapter 12, verse 12, the Lord speaking to Moses, "'For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt.'" Chapter 12, verse 13, "'When I see the blood on the doorframe, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt.'" So up until this point, God worked through Moses, God worked through Moses' staff, God uses little insects, he's able to use rivers, he's able to use lots of different uh, media, if you will, to bring about his plague, but he says in this plague, he's personally there uh, executing judgment, uh, striking the Egyptians, okay? So listen clearly, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people died on this night. Firstborn it is an identity. It's a label. Each marriage would have a firstborn child. A firstborn would wear that label, they would wear that identity their entire life. Being the firstborn has nothing to do with your current age. It has to do with the order of birth. In my world, my firstborn daughter, Maddie, she's a firstborn. My mother, Nancy, she's a firstborn. Uh, Trisha's older sister, Tina, she's a firstborn. My brother, Tommy, he's a firstborn. You see the point? We think little babies. The text says firstborn. Scores and scores of Egyptians died that night. And the text is making sure we know that it's God Himself who did it. Chapter 12, verse 29 The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh. The firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. If you look at verse 23, there is this one called the destroyer. This one called the Destroyer, and so commentators and theologians they'll they'll offer us various explanations uh, as to who uh, the Destroyer is. What what is the exact identity of the Destroyer? Some of them see the Destroyer as a title for God Himself. Uh, Some of them see the Destroyer as the Angel of the Lord. Some of them see the Destroyer as this personification of the tenth plague. But at the end of the day, I don't know how it makes a whole lot of difference. Yahweh is striking. Yahweh is plaguing. Yahweh is destroying the firstborn. What you have recorded in this text is something that theologians call an intrusion. Okay? This is a final judgment day justice coming down into or breaking into history. This is one night in one place where the final judgment intrudes into history and takes effect. It's a temporary and preliminary but devastating taste of final judgment. So if you think about your Bible stories, a lot of them you learned when you were a child. Some of them, even if you're not familiar with, your, with the Bible, you've heard of them. Okay? The Bible records these intrusions where things are just going along and all of a sudden, bam, judgment day just shows up and it's horrific, okay? So, so think about it, uh, Noah and the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, even in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. How many of us haven't done what they did? Just a little bit of duplicity. And God's just like, that's it, intrusion, done. In most of the intrusions in the Old Testament, this word for destroy or destroyer shows up. This is like God's little word that say, hey, something, something's happening here. Pay attention, I'm doing it, and it's important. One commentator, when he began his chapter on chapter 12, he says, and now we enter the sacred precincts of Exodus 12. So at first we say, you know, you you labeled this point uh, that God brings the judgment we want. That's not something I want. That's not something I'm okay with. I, I don't really like a God. I don't want a God. I don't believe in a God who gets wrathful and angry. Who bursts in and kills, who creates a great cry in an entire nation. You're like, that's not what I want. And some of us that are Christians, we believe in the anger and the wrath and the judgment of God as being attributes and activities of the biblical God, but we hesitate to bring it up. And we get uncomfortable. We try to sort of dodge the topic. When our friends or family members want to talk about uh, the Bible or God or the gospel or the Jesus we serve, we try and avoid this God that gets mad and that kills. I'm imagining at the Christian bookstore, although I haven't been in a while, I'm not allowed to go to some of them anymore. I've been kicked out for a previous life. But I'm imagining those posters with the beautiful scenes of nature and a sweet little verse on the bottom. Exodus twelve twenty nine is not one of those verses you see on a beautiful scene at the Christian bookstore. Okay, this is not something uh, that Christians um, know. We don't know what to do with this. But but I want you to know that God brings the judgment we want and even long for. This is a judgment the Israelites wanted. They had endured generations of oppression. Their boys were thrown into the Nile. Their husbands were captured, enslaved, beaten, and sent off to distant places. The text could not be more clear. The judgment that is going on in this text is a judgment the Egyptians deserved. Payment was being made. Early in the story, the Egyptians were striking the Israelites. And now it's God who is striking the Egyptians. Earlier, it was the Israelites who were wailing and crying, a great cry in pain and agony. And now the great cry, verse 30, is coming from the Egyptians who are in pain. This is not evil for evil. It's not the Israelites gaining power and paying the Egyptians back. This is a just and fair God meting out judgment, ensuring that payment is made. Not only is this a judgment, that the Israelites want, I would tell you in the core of core, uh, heart of heart of who we are, this is a judgment we want. This is actually a judgment we long for. You and I do not want to live in a context or a country or a reality where evil is not punished. We don't want to live in a land where payment doesn't have to be made for evil and for oppression. If a murderer or a rapist or even like a reckless driver, if they're not punished or if they're not made to pay for what they've done, society will crumble. Those of us who commit crimes, we will never learn, we will never be rehabilitated. Uh, those of us who are thinking about committing crimes will never be deterred if crimes are not punished, if, 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 rights, uh, if wrongs are not righted. If you don't want a God of judgment and justice, you, you, you want the only person to pay to be the one who was sinned against And the Bible just sort of paints us into that corner. If you take it from a theoretical conversation and you just take it right into everyday life, you and I want to know that God brings judgment. Listen to all that I'm about to say, but I can summarize it in one name. George Zimmerman. Listen to what I'm about to say. I have no idea what happened that day. I have no idea if Zimmerman is guilty of the charges brought against him. I am simply illustrating this. Look at the response of the American public, the ones who think he's guilty. The country is galvanized. The country is rallied around the belief that payment has to be made for the death of Trayvon Martin. The core of core, at the heart of heart, we want God to bring this judgment. Consider this, the story of Eton Patz. Maybe you've seen this adorable little guy's face um, on, on uh, the news um, screen for the last three or four days. He he is the first little boy whose face was put on, on a carton of milk. Eton Patz lives in Manhattan. He's six years old. It's the first day that his mom lets him walk the bus alone. He has not been seen in the thirty-three years since. The search for Aton has been the largest, longest-lasting, most heart-wrenching hunt for a missing child in our country's history. Starting Thursday, federal agents, New York Police Department, they began to tear up the concrete floor of the basement uh, in the Soho section of Manhattan. And I have questions. Why have people continued to search? Why have the police and the federal agents uh, continued to look for the one who may be responsible for his disappearance and and presumed demise. There's something at the heart of who we are. A retired district attorney who worked on the case for 27 years, he said this about the current district attorney who reopened the case. He said, I am pleased that Cy Vance is exploring everything that can help to bring justice to the Pats family. Why? 33 years later, why bring in cadaver dogs? Why dig up 806 square feet of concrete? Why partition off a section of a landfill and sift through all of the debris? Because there's something deep inside of us that knows that wrongs have to be righted, that judgment has to be brought, that payment has to be made. And the first thing we learn about God in the Passover is he is the God who brings the judgment we want. Secondly, he's the God who accepts the substitute he wants. It's worded awkwardly for a reason, okay? So notice something with me. God told Moses and Pharaoh uh, that the 10th plague was going to come in chapter 11, okay? The actual plague happens in 1229. Why the delay, okay? What's going on? What is God up to? What is happening for 28 verses? Listen very carefully. God was preparing Israel for his preliminary judgment day. God was preparing Israel to encounter his holy presence. Just like Noah and his family had to get in the ark of God's description, just like Lot and his family had to flee Sodom and Gomorrah with specific instructions in the exact same way the Israelites had to know how they could survive this intrusion. When the holy God comes near to judge, a person's exclusive focus must be their relationship with God. Even though the Israelites had been sinned against by the Egyptians, that did not mean that the Israelites were sinless in their relationships with one another and perfect in the eyes of a holy God. This point is so crucial. It is a a truth we have to keep in mind if we're going to hold the first point in perspective. The Israelites wanted, and we in our most lucid moments want, a God who brings judgment. But at the same time, they and we deserve judgment from the very same God. That's why it's so confusing. That's why we don't know what to do with it. And so as we move forward in Exodus, we're going to clearly see the sinful and guilty reality of these Israelites' hearts. Okay, so we're going to move forward and they're going to rebel against God and Moses. They're going to build a golden calf to worship while the very presence of God is visible on the mountain above them. They're going to grumble and complain. They're actually going to say, could we go back to the grinding poverty of Egypt? And we're going to see that in the future studies. We're going to see that they weren't perfect. They weren't spotless. They were not without blemish. But we've already seen plenty in what we've covered. Think about what we already know about Moses and what we already know uh, about the Israelites. So Moses comes and tells them, God is going to deliver you and they, they worship and they're, they're excited and they're glad. And, and Pharaoh pushes back just a little bit and resists them just a little bit and they curse God. Moses, their leader, Eighty years of stubbornness, hesitancy, faithlessness, being uncircumcised. The only rule that an Israelite had to keep up to this point was be circumcised, and Moses hadn't even done that. Think about Moses. What was the reason he fled into the wilderness in the first place? Listen to the language. He tried to stop an Israelite from striking another Israelite. And the abusive Israelite said to Moses, What are you going to do? Murder me like you murdered the Egyptian yesterday? Before God came near to judge, before God allowed judgment day to intrude, he had to get the Israelites to focus on him. When we are victimized, we tend to focus only on the people who hurt us. And God is saying, you better get your eyes on me and deal with me. In chapter 12, God is taking their focus off what had been done to them and he's getting them to focus on what they had done to each other and, and, and on their sin in front of him. And he is showing the Israelites how they as sinners could survive a horrific night. Listen, while their debt may have differed in size from the Egyptians, if their focus was revenge or if their focus was the judgment of others, they would have died as payment for the debt Of the sin they owed. God is putting in his people humility. The Lord was teaching them that they too would die that night unless they brought to God the substitute he was willing to accept in their place. Verse 3 Moses, tell the Israelites to pick a lamb on the tenth day of that month. Verse five: The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, from the sheep or the goats. Verse six: Keep that lamb until the fourteenth, when everyone shall kill their lamb together at twilight. Verse seven: Take some of the lamb's blood and put it on the doorframes of each house. Uh, uh, verse eight, uh, eight through eleven: uh, This is how you should eat the Passover. Roast it whole on the fire. Don't butcher it. Don't boil it. Uh, don't eat it raw. Eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. If any is left over, burn it immediately. Don't take off your sandals. Don't sit down. Don't untuck your cloak. Don't take off your belt. Keep your walking stick in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's not a feast to be enjoyed. It's a sacrifice to be owned. And and God is saying it is to be owned as substitution, a death in your place. The text is clear. The destroyer, whoever he is, he is blind to ethnic and class distinctions. Holiness and sinfulness is all he knows. 12.22, if you leave the house while God is passing through the land, you will die. 12.23, if the Lord does not see blood on your doorframe, he will not pass over. And if he does not pass over, the destroyer will enter your house and he will strike you. Verse 27, when you tell this story to future generations, make sure they know God spared us. So we are leery of the first point being entitled the judgment we want because we fear that it might make us arrogant and proud and hard and judgmental people. But if the second point is always taught with the first point and if the primary focus is on our own sin and on the substitute who stood in our place, we'll be humble and grateful and compassionate and evangelistic people who actually care about other People. Before we go to the third point, notice how I've worded this very awkward second point. Yahweh is a God who accepts the substitute he wants. First, during notes, just a, a quick application. If you ever find yourself at a Passover, just remember this. An intrusion, remember this, okay? First, during this intrusion, the Israelite cannot ignore their sin. They don't go outside with a bag of popcorn and watch the fireworks. It's not an option. Second, if they want to survive, cross-reference Cain and Abel, if they want to survive, they can't creatively brainstorm their own substitute and just sort of bring to God what they want. They have to give God the substitute he wants. And third, I tried to kind of word this in in such a way to show that God would accept a substitutionary death in, in their place, but they had to act in faith. They had to own it. They had to publicly offer the sacrifice that God said he would accept. Think with me. Up to this point in the ten plagues, God God had made distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians, either in total or, or for most of the plagues. God had not allowed the plagues to touch the Israelites. But now God's saying, there's a little difference here. I'm actually coming myself to do this one. And he says, you better act. He says, you can be scared. Uh, excuse me, you, you, you can be spared, but it's not automatic. Kill the lamb, catch the blood, paint the door, stay in your house. Look at what it says in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you. If you trust me, if you believe me, if you humbly receive my salvation, think about it. Let your neighbors see you. Slice the lamb's throat, catch the blood, Paint the door. Paint that place in your world that intersects your private life and your public life. Let everybody know what's going on inside. Own it. Act in faith. Show your belief in me. So, we learn about God on the Passover, at the Passover, that he is a God who brings the judgment we want. He accepts the substitute he wants. But we also learn Lord is a God who eventually provides the sacrifice we need. He eventually provides the sacrifice we need. All right? I'm going to submit to you that, that on the night of the Passover, a thoughtful Israelite would have never assumed that a woolly quadruped, okay, would have never thought that this cute little lamb could fully and finally serve as their substitute. Now, let me say it differently. There's going to be several indicators in this story that should have alerted them and should alert us to the fact that while God will allow another to die in our place, that other cannot be an animal. All right, so a thoughtful Israelite, I submit to you on that night, they would have known there's more to the story. First, verse 24. Verse 24 speaks to the Passover rite, the service, the statute, that they were going to continue on in uh, for years and years and years and generations and generations and generations. Before the Israelites ever went out and did what the Lord commanded, verse 28, they were alerted to the fact that this time, next year, they're going to do the same exact thing. In other words, the judgment that they deserve could not be satisfied by this little lamb. Second, God's insistence in verse 5 that the animal be male, without blemish, spotless, proactively perfect, this informed the Israelites that, that they should die for their imperfections, for their blemishes, for their spots. But further, year after year, watching a physically perfect animal die would teach you to look for the spiritually perfect human who could die in your place, one that could actually satisfy the wrath of God. I actually believe that a thoughtful Israelite would have known that, that eventually a perfect human would have to come and die in their place as their substitute. Every one of us knows, I think they learned over time, a sinner can die for their own sin, but it takes a righteous man to die for someone else's sins. Third and finally, I think that the way the plague and the Passover were described to the Israelites, they knew something very significant was going to go down. In the future, I'll explain it to you like this. When I say the action verb, pass over, what do you think? Verse 13, I will pass over you. Verse 23, the Lord will pass over the door. Verse 27, the Lord passed over the houses. I think that we think this that Passover is like jumping. The Lord will skip over your house. The Lord is going to jump over or go past the door when he sees the blood. I think we get the animated flick, Prince of Egypt, into our minds, and we see that wispy little thread-like ghost spirit shadow thing, and he zooms up to a door, and he's like, oh, blood, and he zooms past the door. Nothing could be further from the truth. Our English word Passover is a misnomer. The Israelites heard the Hebrew word Pasach, which I will never do that again, (laughs) which meant this, this is what the actual word means: to hover, to cover, not to jump over, but to stay and shield. Now I know, me included, we're a proud and suspicious bunch. We don't like being told that what we've assumed for 30, 40, 50 years is wrong. We don't like being told that our assumptions are inadequate and inaccurate. Um, But our assumption of the Passover as a hop, a skip, and a jump uh, couldn't be more wrong, and it couldn't rob Jesus of more beauty. What actually happened that night is this. As God was passing through in judgment, when he saw the Lamb's blood, he didn't skip on past, but he stayed, he hovered, he covered, and he protected. It's what the Bible says. Reread it. Verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door, hover, and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Mysteriously, God is doing two things in this verse. He is passing through. In judgment, and he is passing over, hovering in protection. At the same time, God is unleashing his judgment and protecting his people from the very same judgment. There's another place in the Old Testament where this word is given and it's used. And listen to the illustration and listen to the translation this time. Centuries later, the Israelites are tempted to flee to Egypt for protection when another enemy is coming after them, and God is saying, Stay there. Don't look to Egypt for help. I will help you. Isaiah 31, like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. This word was used for a mother hen pulling her chicks under her wings and protecting her brood from danger. About six weeks ago, Stephanie Decker made national news. Stephanie was a loving mother of two. It is a loving mother of two, thank God. And the three of them were caught off guard when the horrific uh, tornadoes ripped through Kentucky. Three of them were, were seeking shelter in the basement, in that place where you should be seeking shelter. And she reported that she could feel the house being sucked up into the vortex um, of the tornado. And she said that she took um, a comforter or a blanket and she covered her kids and, and, and the kids were crying out and they were afraid and she could feel them uh, being moved by the force of the wind. And so she says she laid her body on top of them. She laid her body over them. And as this tornado goes by, a tornado that killed 39 people, she said massive chunks of the house were being picked up and slammed down, picked up and slammed down. She made it through alive, but she lost both of her legs. But listen to this: her children underneath her went through the entire ordeal unscathed. It wasn't that the tornado decided to skip over the house. The tornado unleashed its power and its fury and its deadly intentions but the children were not harmed by the tornado and they were not crushed by the house because their mother took them under her wings, as it were, and shielded them. She was crushed. They were safe. Mysteriously, God was clearly doing two things that night of the first Passover. He was passing through in judgment. He's three in one. You can have a little mystery here, right? And he was passing over hovering over in deliverance. At the same time, God was unleashing his judgment and protecting his people from the very same judgment. I would submit to you that a thoughtful Israelite on the night uh, of the first Passover was aware of two realities. First, at some point in the future, some spotless human being is gonna have to come forward and die for my sins. This killing of the lamb every year cannot go on in perpetuity. Second, knowing what they knew about their word, the thoughtful Israelite would say, when that point in time comes, I'm going to need, mysteriously, someone with the strength of God to defend me from the just judgment and wrath of the very same God. His name is Jesus. Son of God and son of man. The Israelites, of course, had no idea uh, what would finally go down or how this would be ultimately fulfilled. But when we stand on the timeline of history and we look back to the Passover event 3,500 years ago, we can see it through the person and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And what we see at the Passover, through the lens of the cross, is Jesus. When John the Baptist laid his eyes upon Jesus for the first time, this incredibly devout Jew said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A thoughtful Israelite was waiting for a human being to be the spotless Lamb of God. Paul says he couldn't be more clear. 1 Corinthians 5.7, my text says that Jesus is our Passover Lamb. You know what it very simply says? He's our Passover We add lamb because we don't know what to do with that. Jesus said of himself in Luke 13 as he, he was looking at Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children to gather as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing Peter says in 1 Peter 3, Christ suffered and died once for all. The righteous died for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Think of our call to worship. Revelation 5, don't cry anymore. Look, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's worthy, he's strong, he's able to take the scroll, he's able to break the seal. And John looked up and he wipes the tears from his eyes and the snot from his nose. And he looks and he's expecting this powerful lion. But the power of God was displayed in the meekness of a lamb that had been slain. In Romans 3, Paul says that God is both the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He is just. He punishes sins, he rights wrongs, he believes that payment has to be made but he is justifier of the faithful. In other words, he accepts a substitute and he provides the sacrifice. Our sins cannot go unpaid. Payment has to be made. The gospel is this. Jesus takes himself and his beautiful life and he climbs up on the cross and he gives us his life and he takes our death. Mysteriously, God was doing two things at the cross of Jesus Christ. He was unleashing his furious wrath and judgment and at the same time he was protecting his people from the very same judgment. My favorite intrusion in all of scripture is the cross of Jesus Christ. The earth shook. Rocks split. Everything goes dark from noon to three. The wrath of God Thrusts itself into time and space. And the innocent, beautiful, spotless Lamb of God is crushed in our place. Let's pray. Jesus, our text tells us at the very end that this was the response of the Israelites. They bowed their heads. They worshiped you, and they went and did what you said. We thank you that as we look at the judgment of God, the holy, awesome, horrific, rightful judge, that we can look at this judge and this judgment, we can bow our heads, we can worship you as the one who absorbed it, and we can move to the Passover as it's been fulfilled in the sacrament of communion. We thank you, Jesus, that we do not have to pay for our sins. We do not have to earn the Father's love, that you have come and you have paid in full. And in paying in full, you have given us your righteousness and your record and your beauty and your spotlessness and your status as one without blemish. May we believe and may we be filled with gratitude and faith. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.